0: Welcome to The Water Course. I'm your host, Skylar Herzog. This is episode three, featuring Chelsea Schneider. Chelsea is a landscape architect in Bend, Oregon, and she's one of the designers of the Bend Whitewater Park. Personally, I'm fascinated by Whitewater Parks because they're at the interface of recreation and restoration. Here we talk about the technical details of the park and how it works, but also some of the value judgments that went into the designs. Now, I really appreciate Chelsea's willingness to explore these issues. I've found that many people are uncomfortable discussing value judgments, and in fact, I've accidentally offended several people by asking them too many questions about why they made the restoration decisions that they did. That's not to critique them, but just understand them. It's so important to articulate the specific goals of a project and the values behind them, otherwise we'll never achieve those goals. As always, if you want a primer or refresher on Whitewater Parks, pause this podcast now and check out the pre-listening links in the description. There's also a link to some great drone footage of the park, so you can get a better sense of what we're discussing. And one last thing, this podcast will always be free, but if you enjoy it and want to help support it, I now have a Patreon account linked in the description. All proceeds will be divided between supporting my time on the podcast and supporting undergraduate research, both hourly pay and equipment. I'm really excited about the opportunity to give back to uh, undergraduate research. So again, if you like this podcast, please share it and uh, consider supporting it. Thanks. For The Water Course, this is your host, Skylar Herzog, and I'm interviewing Chelsea Schneider. She's the principal landscape architect at Loci Studio and a former landscape architect with Bend Parks and Rec during the time of a Whitewater Park construction. So I'm excited to talk with her today about some of those things. But before we dive into the Whitewater Park and some of the technical designs, Chelsea, can you talk about what the Deschutes River means to you and to Bend at large?
1: Sure thing. Um, Early on, Bend developed as a timber town. And so they utilize the river extensively for logging, for transportation. And over time, Bend has evolved to transition out of timber and into recreation. And so the river has continued to be the backbone of what draws people to the area. It's it's a recreation opportunity. It's a beautiful stretch of river that the city uh, wraps itself around.
0: Yeah, it seems like, you know, it's such an important cultural piece for modern citizens of Bend. And it's interesting to look at how the new ethic of environmental protection and conservation and recreation compares with the past in terms of extraction and really manipulation of the environment for human use. And in some ways, we still do that. We just do it differently. We're now floating inner tubes instead of logs on that pond, right?
1: <laughs> that is That is very true. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it that, as as you mentioned, a lot of people are coming to Bend um, and are bringing that expectation that what they see when they first encounter the river, that's its natural state. That's the way it should be. And it's kind of, it's an interesting dialogue anytime any of these types of projects occur, where part of the dialogue, part of the discussion is an education of what a river is, what our river is, but also what its truly natural state would be and why, why it's challenging to try to restore it to that truly natural state.
0: It seems to me that it's almost in an identity crisis right now where, you know, historically it was used and, and the entire system was manipulated for irrigation and timber and now we are trying to restore it but as you said that requires knowing and understanding the history and the current state and how we got to the current state and then working within that framework to envision what it can and should be obviously that many of these things are specific to the deschutes river but it's really a case study it's a very um, intensely managed river so in some ways i think it's like many other rivers but more so as they say there's a lot packed into this very small little river in central oregon
1: I think that's an interesting observation that it's kind of kind of a case study of everything that that could be unusual about a river in the high desert. you know using using irrigation as an example, you're well aware that the the river is highly controlled in that basically every drop of water that runs through the river system is accounted for in the irrigation system.
0: And the entire system is managed in that framework. There's dams upstream near the headwaters of the river, and they actually release water according to the irrigation demand. On average, about ninety percent in the summer is diverted from the river for irrigation. All those constraints are really important on uh, any potential projects, right?
1: Absolutely. And the irrigation demands the irrigation system as a larger meta system it has. And can, will continue to have an outsized impact on any, any design that goes on anywhere along this reach of the chutes. The yeah,
0: you know, I want to be clear, too. I don't, want, I don't intend to come across as too critical of any of this because um, I recognize it's a very complicated history. There's reasons why things were done. And arguably, without that timber and without that ranching, the town wouldn't be here at all. So it's important not to just sit here and point fingers at at past decisions and, and ongoing decisions without knowing the details of why and how. I'm more interested in in discussing the value judgments, but not necessarily really critiquing them per se. It's more just interesting to me to find out what people were thinking and, and why. Maybe that's a good time to segue into this specific project. So can you talk about this Whitewater Park and kind of what what kind of situation you inherited as, as you look at it, trying to update it and make it... Uh, kind of jive more with the current ethic.
1: Sure. So uh, stepping back a little bit, we've talked fairly extensively about the irrigation expectations of utilizing the Deschutes River. Also in this reach, the river was dammed in 1915 to provide basically a mill pond for logs to be shunted one side of the river to the other. The dam was hastily constructed and over time it was augmented and built upon and built upon. And the structure became kind of a, a jumbled mess, if you will. It was a wood crib dam that then was backfilled with riprap and had this bridge superstructure on top of it. And if it remained utilized by timber, then it would have continued to function fine. However, Timber industry receded in Bend and the recreation opportunities rose. So there was more and more recreational pressure on this reach of the river.
0: Yeah, and this is the, in terms of the identity changing for the town, right? We're transitioning away from a mill town to this kind of hub of recreation and environmental awareness.
1: Absolutely. This is kind of that pivot where you're recognizing it has a historic flavor and place, but it also is uh, transitioning to being bigger things or, or different things.
0: Yeah, and I imagine that's going to be familiar to many, many folks listening here. Uh, from whatever town that you're in or you work in, there's always this contrast and this tension between what got you there and then what's the current thoughts about what's best. And luckily, we're getting more of an environmental awareness movement and trying to clean things up and enjoying and appreciating Those things. So, can you uh, describe what the uh, motivation was to make this Whitewater Park? Where did that come from? And then, uh, yeah, we'll start there.
1: Sure. So, there were several sources of inspiration that went into selecting this location and this project for the Whitewater Park. One being, as I mentioned, more people were beginning to engage with the river upstream of this site, this particular dam. And so, as more people floated it, there were incidents where people who weren't familiar with the hazard of the dam in its kind of jumbled construction would fail to get out of the river. there There was a river takeout point, but it was sometimes it was challenging for people to take out in time. And so unfortunately, on occasion, throughout the summers preceding the project, someone would pass over the dam and would have to be rescued. Oh jeez. Fire and rescue was responding to at least an event a month during the summer summer months. So safety was was one issue.
0: And you also mentioned that the dam wasn't necessarily in great shape.
1: And the dam dam was continuing to fail. Also concurrent with that, there was a need, there is a need for that mill pond to be maintained in place. The mills may be gone, but there are irrigation and fire suppression systems that rely on that mill pond to be retained at its current elevation. Also, the organ-spotted frog, which is a newly listed threatened species, was found in this reach of the river. And so all of those factors kind of coalesce around the fact that the dam needs to be retained in place, but it needs to be changed to the point that it's safe for the thousands of folks who continue to use the river.
0: Sure. So as the Ben Parks and Rec department is looking at this, they're saying, okay, we have to do something. There's obviously motivating factors with safety, but then what is the vision? Like, what is kind of the spirit of the project? Again, I want to, with this podcast, I want to get a little bit away from the technical. We'll get, we'll get to that as well. But I'm also kind of fascinated by the chance to look at these things as opportunities, not just to to do the minimum, but to really be assets for the community.
1: So the big vision uh, that drove the project would be the desire, the long-term vision to create a river trail through Bend, looking at the river as not only the backbone of the community, but also an opportunity to be kind of a circulation system. And so in the far distant future, somebody could put in above River Bend Park, float all the way through, and continue down to Pioneer Park. and, And through all of those current obstructions
0: kind of a recreation corridor
1: yeah it would be an alternate transportation but it's also alternate recreation it's not there's not many cities that you would be able to paddleboard one end of the city down to the other
0: okay so can we then talk about the more some of the technical details of this I mean I really love I'm fascinated by the decision making process here because it's so easy to just say something generic like is our number one priority or we're focused on habitat above all or recreation above all, but it's never that simple. You know, those are really just kind of bromides people say, I think to get people on board, but they're not true in a lot of ways. So I'm more interested in how people make the hard decisions of optimizing amongst a set of all maybe good options. If we want to truly focus on habitat for say steelhead and salmon, yeah, we might have no recreation at all in the river. But what we're actually looking for is a way to have you know great habitat and balance that with safe recreation. So out of the many positive changes that this project could have made, can you talk about maybe the main things that were really the focus of the project?
1: So this project was focused on, I would say, four main goals. One being to provide an opportunity for people to float the river, to continue to float the river, and or cordage around the dam. One would be to provide fish passage up and downstream, and also to provide a habitat restoration feature, and then also uh, to provide the active recreation opportunities, which would be those surfing slash kayaking features.
0: Okay, and I assume you're looking for other co-benefits, so to speak, but those really are the core. You can't have everything be the number one priority. So, okay, that's that's helpful. And then you also mentioned some constraints. So this is how I'm kind of thinking about: it. there's the there's the goal, and then there's the constraints you have to work with. And then you get into some creative spaces about okay, given these constraints and these goals, how do we achieve them in the best way possible? Right. So, so what were the kind of rundown of major constraints? You mentioned oh, the paw needs the same place, right?
1: The pond needs to stay in place. The floodway and floodplain need to be protected.
0: And there's teeth to those things too, right? Because you mentioned before the, the spotted frog was found in the pond and even there was fire suppression lines that were drawn from the pond for some of the businesses upstream.
1: That is correct. So the other constraints that that drove the design on this project were the water flows. We've talked about how water flows are higher in the summer through this reach of the river and lower in the winter. That drove a lot of the design decisions as to how you parse out where the water goes amongst all of those priorities that we we talked about previously.
0: Yeah, because you also have these requirements in the channel. So the, the fish ladder basically needs to have, there's flow requirements, there's velocity requirements, there's Uh, step height requirements to make sure that the fish can get over each step, right? So all these layers are adding in more and more constraint.
1: Absolutely. Yes. So you need to maintain a certain volume of water going in the direction of the fish passage. You also need to have a certain amount of water flowing into the habitat area to ensure that you don't have stagnant water building up. And then basically after that, any volume of water that you have that's beyond those two first priorities is then directed into the, the center whitewater recreation channel. And so that constraint is also coupled with the fact that this dam is basically between two pools and there was only a certain linear length that we could utilize for this feature. So the solution ended up being basically to visualize it it would be to build a ramp at the toe of the dam, build it out, and on that ramp, on the on the face, the surface of that ramp, that's where those features would be placed. I mean, I'm
0: surprised to hear the level of constraint here because I would have thought going into it that it would be kind of a blank slate to say, okay, what do we want here? We, can, we have this room to do this stuff. We have this 10 or 12 foot head drop across this dam, so we have a lot of wiggle room to do whatever we want here, but what it sounds like is You were highly, highly constrained by all these things, including the footprint area, as you said, not even to mention public perception and public desires for what would look good. So as as a hydrologist now, when I go and look at the Whitewater Park, I think it's quite striking, quite beautiful. But one thing that kind of surprises me, or at least surprised me at first, was that the river is divided into three kind of upstream, downstream, longitudinal sections, that there is the kind of fish ladder slash inner tube ride down the, the Whitewater Park. There's the center channel that has the surfing wave and everything. And you also have this kind of habitat channel on on the river, right? And it seemed to me that maybe there was an argument amongst people and they couldn't decide. So they just divided the river in three, kind of a la King Solomon. Can you talk about that too? And what options were considered and why not two channels? Why not four channels, for example?
1: Yeah, I think that's definitely when you look at the park, that is exactly what you see is it's like... Well, we have these three priorities. Let's just make a zone for each of them. And functionally, I think it's more subtle than that. As we mentioned, the river upstream used to be a functioning mill pond. And the river widened because the the slower water flows. Uh, it's, It's actually a very wide and shallow section as it reaches the dam in order to hydraulically create the whitewater features to create the fish ladder the volume of water had to be constricted quite a bit to be able to deepen those channels to support those water features so the habitat channel compared to the other two channels is actually wider it actually takes up more space but it it receives a lower volume of water. And the long vision, the long intent of that channel is for it to succeed over time into into a wetland channel. We were surprised actually the first year after developing the channel how it was a huge destination for waterfowl and for, for fish species. So um, I think even right after development it it showed to be a success in, in that realm. Yeah, you
0: told me offline you were chasing fly fishermen away from there quite a bit yes. at first.
1: Yes, it was a destination for all, all types, all, all species. That also speaks to how this project ended up supporting a lot of ancillary goals, creating habitat for kingfishers, for example, and for osprey and uh, creating opportunities for people to learn about the river with the placement of the pedestrian bridge. I can't tell you how many tours I gave to all different types of groups explaining how, how this worked, why it was important, what the long vision is uh, into the future.
0: Yeah, can you talk about that more? Because to me, that's the, the real artistry of the project. Once you have the design constraints set, then it's about, okay, the fine-tuning and these really detailed judgments. Because, I mean, you talked about that last time, too. The landowner had uh, desires about what the river would look like on their bank. And so by the time all that's determined, you're very constrained by all these uh, system requirements, basically, to have the, the design basically set for you in terms of the, the bulk layout. But then all these little judgments go into it to make it look nice, to make it feel really nice and and personally i've i've tubed through there a bunch of times i walk by there all the time and i really still enjoy that place so um can you talk about that too and some of the judgment calls that go into that from more of the landscape architecture side of things you know because because people don't even notice necessarily that it's artificial which is quite an achievement for how artificial it really is
1: like <laughs> I think that's great to hear. I The, the project certainly has matured. Uh, right out of the gate, it was pretty raw. Um, you could tell that it was a newly constructed project, but it's comforting that it's beginning to soften and beginning to kind of take its more mature form.
0: I walk with friends through there all the time and they have no idea until I point out to them that this is even modified. You know, I'll say, oh, did you notice that 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 tree limb is rebarred into the bank there. Did you notice this? Do you see that steel plate in the channel? Like there's actually a lot of very clear kind of, controlling design that it's disguised so so well. And, you know, the, the Habitat channel has a very quasi-natural looking waterfall feature, for example, that could have been a grate or a pipe and instead, you know, there's all these kind of artistic touches there. So can you talk about those decisions and how you build that on the template of the overall design?
1: Sure. So it's interesting on a, in a project like this, it is largely driven by, to be honest, engineering decisions. It's, uh, you know, the the forces of hydrology drive the depths and the widths of, of the channels and what space you have left over. We also had to consider this is a unique feature in that you can see it from virtually any direction. And so it's not your typical landscape vista where you're you're looking from a certain point of view. You may be walking along a trail.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, you have to think about it from a 3D perspective.
1: Absolutely, because as, as you have experienced, you can walk along the trail. Uh, you can walk up above this, this Whitewater Park and look directly down upon it. You can walk along and enjoy the views from... Uh, from the adjoining park. And so all of this, it, it's almost like you have to look at it in, in not even just uh, three dimensions, but four dimensions. You have to think about this over time sure. and how.
0: And there's also people on the water floating or surfing.
1: There's people on the water, there's people in the water. So there's so many different uh, variables as far as, as aesthetics and and, and visibility. We also had um One of the aesthetic drivers was working closely with the adjoining landowner and and achieving their expectations of what their frontage would continue to look like. And so that results in in kind of what you see today. You have aesthetics, but you also have the functional side of the landscape that needed to be contemplated as those features were, were designed and developed. Likewise, looking at the islands, you may notice that there's not much vegetation on those islands. One of the driving decisions for that was knowing people you have to manage opportunities for people to tie rope lines back and forth and try to create their own little surfing waves and so there's so many of those uh, programmatic elements that drive what is possible so you like you you said you have to when it went down to okay what are the areas that we can work with what are the biggest impact points that we can we can hit to create um create something that looks like it belongs there over time that's that's the fun part of landscape architecture is it uh looks its best about 20 40 years after you've you've built it and so yeah it'll be interesting to come back in a couple decades and see how it's fared
0: but uh, i mean it's interesting to hear the constraint about vegetation and things like that too, because as someone selfishly walking along the pathway and, and wanting to look at the river, I'm glad there's not too much vegetation because I I love just to stare at the river and see the swirling patterns, the turbulence. And this is kind of that idea of a you know a, a managed garden more so than pure nature, because if the vegetation was too high or there was no pathway there at all, then it wouldn't be as fun for me to, to look at and uh, to recreate on and so there's this tension between what is most natural and what's the most in line with what people want out of the system that's one example of kind of competing values about what you want for the river to be I have no shame in admitting that I love to just stare up at the river and I think a lot of people will get that but that may not be what you wanted to put in originally if you had your your choice right <laughs> I
1: I think you are absolutely right that any project along the edge of the river requires a balance. There's an incredible desire from folks in the community to be able to access the river and they want to be able to access the river at many points and they want to be able to you know get into the river to be able to play in the river at this point and be able to get out and do it all again. And so it was a long and continuing discussion of how much access Do we want kind of a filtered access? Do we want points where people are allowed to get in? Or do we want a continuous trail that basically what you find today, which parallels the river? And I think at the end of the day, we recognize that this is one of those points along the river where it is given over to kind of that human interaction. And that immediately downstream, you'll find that very uh riparian edge you'll find very dense vegetation and very that is where if you were on the land side you would detach from the river and you would walk upland to be able to continue along the river corridor and so i think it's the it's again a microcosm of the long vision of treating the river as okay this is the great interaction point this is the point where you can get in you can watch the river you can watch the people in the river you can get in get close and then let's expand away, step away and allow the river to be what the river wants to be as far as a natural feature.
0: Yeah, I look at it like a continuum, right? Like there are access points that you need to have. That's one of the fundamental uses of the river these days. And it's a relatively uninvasive use. And th- but there needs to be this continuum from more managed to more pristine, You can see that going through, even within Bend itself, you go through this kind of tightly managed area that has a lot of access points uh, that you're talking about here with the Whitewater Park and parks upstream, but then you continue up another mile and you're in a pretty pristine looking canyon. So that's not to say it's not modified because it is still heavily modified, but the aesthetic and the feeling that you get walking through there is totally different. And if you want to continue on further upstream, you can go up towards Sun River and get a much more wild float experience. So I like that there's more options for different people in different experiences, even for the same person. So if you want the more urban float, come through Bend. If you want the more pristine float, go through Sun River. And the biggest testament to the planning is that even the more urban section still looks pretty good. And it looks, it can fool a lot of people, I think, that aren't trained to think this is a natural river.
1: So, so jumping back, you may, um, may not have noticed in looking at the park that there are mechanical features that help control the flows into the channel, but they also help maintain the mill pond elevation upstream. As you look down from the pedestrian bridge, you can actually see these panels that in the summertime are generally laying flat can be elevated in lower flow conditions to raise the mill pond elevation and or they can be used to shunt water from one channel to the other.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, so I, I've seen there's a steel plate, you know, just below the platform on the pedestrian bridge. So that's what you're talking about?
1: That's, that is it. So uh, yes, as you look down directly above both the fish passage channel and the whitewater channel, you'll see these steel plates. And so basically there's an airbag that's, that's under those plates that can be inflated to choke the water off to other channel or they can be dropped in the event of a flood. Uh, they can be dropped to allow the water to flow freely. Also downstream in the active whitewater channel, you'll see a different version of those same panels. They're, they have a rubber plate on their face that are used to shape, to actually sculpt the shape of the waves downstream.
0: So this is fascinating to me because this is only the third episode of this podcast, but I'm already getting this trend of uh, the need for real-time control. It's particularly interesting here in the Whitewater Park because as we've discussed, the Deschutes River is so tightly managed already. There's so little change in the discharge throughout the year and it's so tightly controlled. You can actually see, you know, the bathtub ring effect on some of the rocks in the river and, and the stage only changes by about a foot over the whole year which is just unprecedented for a river of this size and this climate. But even with that, you still need to have all this control to make sure that the fish passage is getting the right amount of flow and velocity and depth. But then you also are saying that there's an element of that to sculpt the waves in the Whitewater Park. So can you talk about that? Like, how often is that changed? Is that manually changed? Is, that, is there an algorithm that does that? Or can the, can the surfers get on an app and change the wave pattern?
1: I'm sure they would enjoy that but no, it's not to that, (laughs) not to that extent. So the river is actively managed. Um, There actually is a staff person, actually I think three staff people now, who that is their job is they go out, they monitor the upstream elevations to again ensure that mill pond stays in place. They monitor the flows that are coming down to the whitewater park so that they can predict, okay, this is how much water we're going to need at what hour into each channel. So the person who manages the, the channel actually walks out there with a tablet and can push controls to be able to change the elevation of whichever panel they want to use to sculpt the the various waves.
0: That's interesting. So the theme that's developing around this is the need to have real-time control because, you know, you can't just go and change the physical infrastructure at that site every time something changes, right? And, and what's interesting is you talk about all the constraints with the design of the project. And in some ways, this project reinforces that because as you design this project with the current status quo of the system, you now provide another piece that needs to be considered with any future projects. And so this kind of real-time control seems to be a critical aspect of being able to change things in the operation without changing the physical infrastructure, which takes so much time and money. There's also the trade-off that they have to be managed in the long term. They have to, I'm sure there's parts that break and wear down. And there's repairs that have to go in with those those plates and the um, actuators and everything like that. So can you talk about that decision-making process and to what extent is adaptability trying to be reincorporated back into the system?
1: So I think that's a great observation that utilizing the system gives the park district and you know future managers, I guess, assurance would be would be a phrase of being able to have more of that latitude to control what happens day to day, but also into the future. So a great example of that adaptability that this real-time system puts in place is the ability to respond to the new uh, water regime that's been implemented over time to protect the organ-spotted frog. When the project was originally designed, it didn't contemplate the Oregon spotted frog because it was unknown, but over the development of the project and the installation of the project, the management of the Oregon spotted frog has changed. And so river flows upstream that would be flowing into the site have been changed over time. Therefore, this project with its uh, adaptability is able to respond to those different flows. Whereas if they had a static system, it, as you say, it would be very problematic to go in, change the channels, you know, increase the lip of the dam. All those different features are, as you said, adaptable. Those can all change given whatever needs uh, need to be responded to at a time.
0: Yeah, and if you you can add in climate change, and even if the structure did not perform as you expected it to perform, you can have some more controls to play with there. So that's, that's really cool.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So volume of water over time, who knows uh, what's going to happen in this watershed going into the future. That buffer, that resilience is built into this system to be able to, to respond to different events as they occur and hopefully continue to manage this reach of the river for recreation, but also for habitat You know, being its primary purpose.
0: Yeah. Instead of further ossifying the river into this kind of set status quo, you're building back in that flexibility, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah.
0: I mean, it, nothing's perfect, but I mean, the site is more flexible now than it was before, at least.
1: Yes. Yes. So historically, they used to go out with flashboards to try to raise and lower the mill pond. Right. And I think this, wow. <laughs> this approach is a little bit, uh, little bit more adaptable.
0: For sure. All right. Uh, last thing I want to touch on is the sense of place. I assume that's the play on words with Loci Studios. It is. As well as kind of the sense of place or places. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Genus genius Loci. What was that? Sorry. Genus Loci is the the idea of, of places having their own spirit.
0: Ah, okay. Okay. Nice. I've never heard the genus part of that in that context. That's cool. So um, can you talk about that a bit here? And I, I don't claim to be even an amateur landscape architect by any means, but I I think I've read that the idea that in a park or in a place like this, sometimes you want the things the features not to be noticed that there's a sense of if it really, if it's really authentic and proper, you won't even be aware as someone walking through that it's there. It will just feel good and feel right. So is that, is that true? And uh, can you kind of talk about that and how that ties back to the park?
1: Sure. Yeah. (laughs) In my anxious in history. <laughs> I was involved in uh, theater. And so I was in involved in technical theater. And we were doing our job well if we weren't seen. If the scenery disappeared and the people on stage were, you know, the thing that, that everybody was paying attention to. But that scenery was still important. That background was still important. And so I think I brought that into how I think about landscape architecture, that you know, design landscapes are intentional. And if you're doing your job right over 20, 40 years, nobody will know that this was a designed element, that that it was intended, that it was, you know, placed by by people. I think that is a goal that can be strived for. It's impossible to achieve because, like you observed with the rebar holding the snags in the river. If you look closely, if you look under, you can actually see those inner workings and you can kind of see those layers of landscapes over time. And so I think it's a balance of being intentional, making it feel like it's been there forever, but it doesn't necessarily completely recede. In 20 or 40 years, what you intended with this feature will be reinterpreted by other folks experiencing the place it'll be a question of why did you choose to do that was this just you know some remnant why did they choose to make that decision but if it was a well thought out decision i think it does become integrated and it does become part of the place and become yes of course it's supposed to be there
0: and i can see that critical side i mean the same way with restoration more broadly there's always the question of can one even restore truly, and if so, to when, to what time point. But I don't think we should let perfection be the enemy of good in this case, where there's still huge gradients of better and worse. And I think it's more important to articulate those value judgments and to be able to think critically about them and and move forward. But I can say personally, I really enjoy that whole area and it's a great amenity for Bend. Well, great. I wanna wrap up by asking, you know, what do you see when you look at the whitewater park today, and what are you most proud of? Sure. So,
1: looking at the whitewater park, I see kind of that nexus, that connection point where so many activities and so much interest comes to one point in the river. That's kind of what I feel when I when I walk along that bridge, where I walk along that trail. Is like there's so much revolving around this one point, this one zone. Um, there's so much activity. There's so much interest. There's so much dedication. There was So much time and effort put into making this a great space, but also how much spins off of that. So many recreation opportunities, so much connection to other parts of Bend, so much opportunity to be an inspiration for projects into the future. As we talked about early on, you know, that's what makes Bend Bend is the Deschutes River. That is how we came to be and that is a core of how we will continue on. Being able to create these places along the river has been a great honor.
0: For sure. So Chelsea, thanks so much for uh, giving this interview. I want to give you a chance to tell people how they can contact you with questions. So you're, again, uh, with Loci Studio. And do you have an email address that you'd like to give out? Sure.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity to chat with you. People can reach me at chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at loci, L-O-C-I dot studio. And yeah, look forward to chatting with folks or fielding any questions.
0: All right. Thanks so much.
1: All right. Thanks.
0: Thanks again to Chelsea Schneider for opening up about the decision-making process behind the Bend Whitewater Park. If you want to learn more, check out the post-listening resources in the episode description. The first is a graduate thesis by Kristen Podolak about stream restoration, stream aesthetics, and whitewater parks. It's long, but it's a great deep dive into the history and details of these concepts. The second article is about how to model the hydraulics of whitewater parks and their impact on fish habitat. If you have any trouble accessing either resource, remember you can always email the author to ask for a free copy for your personal use. You can reach out to me on Twitter at watercoursepod and by email via watercoursepodcast at gmail.com. Suggestions for future episode topics are always welcome. If you liked today's episode, please subscribe, tell a friend, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Until next time, I'm your host, Skylar Herzog.